Hello and welcome to Clappercast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief, Jack Luke Sharp, and today I'm happy to be joined by Cass and Tamar. Hello, hello. Alina Folds. Hello. And Kyle Gaffner. Hello there. On today's episode, we're discussing Netflix's The Kissing Booth 2, starring Joey King, Karen Mayne's Yes, God, Yes, starring Stranger Things alumni Natalie Dyer, and finally, Beanie Feldstein in How to Build a Girl. Let's start off with our first film, The Kissing Booth 2. Hey! You two do go everywhere together. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we do. Anyway, uh, I, sorry. We wanted to uh, ask you something. We did this kissing booth at the homecoming fundraiser, and we were wondering if you'd be one of our kissers this year. No. No. Why no? I have my reasons. Come on, dude, it's the most popular booth, and it's for charity. Don't you believe in charity? Standing here talking to you. Hey, that was a good one. <laughs> High school senior Elle juggles a long-distance relationship with a dreamy boyfriend Noah, college applications, and a new friendship with a handsome classmate that could change everything. Kyle, fire away. So before I quickly get into the kicking booth too, it's probably worth mentioning my history with the first one as they're pretty connected. But I had seen the first half of the first one when it came out about two years ago and I barely remembered it. I must have just checked out to do something else. So the day before kicking booth two came out, I was like, okay, I'll catch up and I'll watch the the first one to understand, you know, the lore before going in. So I watched it and I hated it. I just couldn't get into the the characters I thought were really unlikable. The the style, especially the editing style, was super abrasive and hard to just enjoy. It was so in your face. So when I saw that The Kissing Booth 2 was over two hours long, I think two hours, 15 minutes in total, uh, to say that I was looking forward to watching it would be a complete lie. But uh, it started and it was basically the exact same film as the first one in almost every single way. It went on, it, it kept going, it ended two hours, 15 later, and I really enjoyed the film. I can't believe I did, but I think why I enjoyed it more than the first one is it takes the aspects for good or for bad from the first one that people love or hated and just kind of amplifies them and doesn't, it's not afraid to do what it wants. It clearly knows who liked it and the audience it's going for, and it just commits to kind of every idea that it wants to. Um, that whether that be with the editing style, which comes back in full force, there's like musical, num- not musical numbers, but there's there's like one sequence in particular where it's like a really pop song's playing, the camera's doing 360s, there's superimposed images, there's fireworks going off, which on paper sounds like the worst thing ever committed to film. But somehow the way it's executed, it's not that hateable compared to the first one, especially. But I know not everyone agrees with me on that regard. You just took the words out of my mouth on the first 10 minutes of this film because I was shocked because the first film, even in the context of like Netflix teen movies that normally are shit, I think it is particularly like special shit. I think it's definitely on the lower tier of just all the shit on Netflix. But then Kissing Booth 2 starts off and clearly understands like 
everything and uh, compared to the first film which is trying to be very serious and the horrible editing and the horrible voiceover and the just horrible plot and just horrible everything this film clearly understands that it's being horrible so it does it in this tongue-in-cheek way that i found actually really funny and enjoyable for the first 10 minutes and i was fully on board for the film and then it goes on for another two hours and it became one of the most boring and painful viewing experiences I maybe have ever had. I got to the point where I had to just live tweet that it was continuing to go, just to simply will myself to get to the ending. I think this is absolutely just a shit film, despite being, I think, better made than the first film because it's aware of how it's being just terrible. I think it is completely unwatchable compared to the first film due to how long the runtime is, the horribly cliched plot, um, you know exactly where it's going. And the fact that there is no kiss, there's the kissing booth is in it for five minutes. It was absolutely frustrating. Um, it's just, it, it's trash, but it knows it's being trash, but it doesn't fix it completely from being trash. And why it has such a long runtime is beyond me. Um, but to say I'm excited for the three hour, the kissing booth three, absolutely, I'll be here to talk about it. Um, but as far as kissing booth two, pr- I respect the film more than the first movie, but I think it's unwatchable. Okay, I'm gonna come in with some sort of a defense about the long run time. So when I rewatched the first Kissing Booth like two days before Kissing Booth 2 came out and I wrote, Netflix really needs to learn to tell their directors the word no because why on earth is the Kissing Booth 2 132 minutes? Like that's ridiculous. But like looking back on the Kissing Booth 2, a lot of the like subplot points like connect back to like Elle's relationship with Noah so like I can kind of justify it but like so one thing I kept seeing was the whole dance sequence in the middle it's kind of annoying and it feels like it's really off on like a tangent but that's the point where she like starts to have feelings for Marco so like fine we have to keep that in there because then there would be no relationship conflict between Marco and Noah or like the whole plot point about how Elle is like stressed about paying for university because like her mom's dead, she only has her dad. Apparently it's really ridiculous for Americans to go out of state. I don't know, I don't pay that much tuition here in Canada, I feel bad for you guys. But that makes sense also because that's really affecting her decision to go to Harvard or to go to Berkeley. So yeah, it's long and they probably could have cut it down, but it makes sense, like, because all of the plot points are, like, meant to be there. They're, like, they're there for a reason. So I can tolerate it. And I, I liked it better than the first one. And the reason I liked it better than the first one is I found Noah to be a lot less controlling in this movie than the first one. And the first one, he's, like, such a sexist. He controls Elle so much. I was so mad that she like ended up getting with him because he's borderline like abusive towards her. Like stop telling girls what to do just because you're in a relationship with them. It's rude and it's annoying and it's whack. And he's a lot less of a dick in the second one. So I liked the second one better for that reason. I'm glad I'm not going to be the the, the cynical person on this uh, podcast for the first time in about six weeks, but I must admit, I'm, I'm, I, (laughs) I understand the hatred towards this and I'll get on to that in a second, but I just don't know why anyone dislikes the first one or anyone can come away from, from liking uh, this one better. I mean, Alina put some good points uh, forward. So 
I can I completely understand. But for me, from the from the get go, this was. I mean, Carl, uh, I'm going to have to quote you here. The, you you said the worst thing ever committed to film, and I think, and I know I'm taking that out of context, but I completely agree with you, regardless. I have so much not to say about this, yet at the same time, I can't help but like every five minutes just pick something apart. Like at the beginning of the opening of the film, when Joey King's on on the bike, Arnold Schwarzenegger couldn't ride that bike. Like it just. There's like these small moments throughout when I'm just I'm leaped out the film to just question my own sanity as well as whoever whoever made this. Why is this 130 minutes long? Why? Why? Why is this long longer than probably what twice as much as you could get done in in a TV series? Like it's ridiculous. I mean, again, I'm just going to go through my letterbox points here. I'm going to keep them brief because there's some some absolute bangers here. Like. I cannot stress this enough. If you're ever going to go to college in, in Europe, in the States, wherever, and I stress, do not go to a school because of your friend. Don't do it. I mean, first class to Boston. I, what, I, I understand these people are rich. And then, like Alina said, the, the family's having real trouble you know, surviving. Her mother sadly passed away. And she's got a younger brother who doesn't get any screen time except for this small moment in the after credits, which was quite sweet, but... Again, nothing came of it. The father's, um, unironically, like not there all the time. So there's just nothing there to, to play with regarding a social, well, not a social, a family dynamic, but the social one takes precedent throughout. Like if, if these people are trying to, this, well, if this film's trying to convey to me that this family's struggling, why is she going first class to Boston, even though Noah paid for it? It's just like, you know, with, with the best friend's got the Mustang. You know, she's got this bike. They live in like a really, really, really expensive house in the Hollywood Hills. It just never seems to end. Like, it's just so not self-aware. But it, I, I understand why someone said, well, you know, like, like I think you said, Carson, like, it, it's, a, it's a film that doesn't take itself seriously, but for me, it contradicts itself at every sight. I, you know, <laughs> Elle might need to go work at McDonald's for like 3.30 an hour and see what real problems are like, because in this, she's, it's just suffocating to, to beyond belief to hear someone have such a difficult decision to make about going to college when, you know, like, you know, there's far bigger things in the world to worry about. But I, that's one thing I, I can get away with. You know, I, I can understand that. But, you know, if, if anything, I know I've, I've just spitballing because I've literally got nothing to say, but I will say a few more things. Like, Ollie and Randa, they should have been the real prom king and queen. I thought that was the biggest pile of shit that they won't vote that. I thought it was absolute disgrace. Um... I, I just I can't understand why it's 110 minutes long again. Um, Rais, uh, Maisie Richardson sells Chloe Winthrop in the film, who's this really weird third party um, narrative that's going against Joey King's and and and, and Jennifer Garraldi's relationship. Like the again, it sort of writes that uh, subverted expectation, which I, I, sort of, I was slightly appreciative of. But she makes mention in the film that. She's the, she's the only person immune to Noah Flynn, but I have to break it to her. Like, I am also immune to that person. So I don't know where that came from. Um, but overall, I, I think uh, this, this, is, this is an absolute disaster, but it's a disaster that's going to find, uh, undoubtedly find a home. It's going to have so many fans. It's going to be a generational meme for the next, what, 10, 10 years. Um, I just think we're not ready for uh, the kissing booth three whenever that may turn up. But um, if anything goes to prove that, you know, in life, it, sometimes you get what you don't want. And I think this is one of those uh, moments where I, I'm going to end up questioning why I watch this, if I will ever watch it again. But I will say that 
regardless of how bad this this is, all credit to Joey King, who's had a really good year this year. I mean, she was in the acts with the Patricia Arquette, and then she goes to this. I mean, money talks, doesn't it, at the end of the day? I think the hard, which we're all agreeing on, is the length is the hardest thing to get your head around. And similar to what you were saying, Carson, is the film doesn't even offer almost anything to justify its length. Whereas I know Lena, you were saying that the subplots all connect to Elle and I um, can't remember anyone's name, but her boyfriend's relationship. But I'm kind of in the middle between both of you because I don't think the film does justify its length regardless of anything it does. Because so many of the subplots, although they are linked to this main narrative where she has to, I think they're trying to say she has to trust her, you know, she has to trust rather than constantly, you know, judging people. She thinks Chloe's there to try and break her and Noah up. But the film also doesn't even commit to it because they're trying to do it both ways. Like she has got this thing with Marco, but with Marco, she does, she ends, she cheats on Noah because she kisses him in front of like 10,000 people at this dance off on the DDR machine, which the issues with that entire content, like how are they even doing the dance when they're not looking at the screen, but regardless. And it's never really established. Like she, she cheats on him and then, but Noah is still the one that they kind of portray as not the bad guy, but they're constantly like, oh, this Chloe, she's mysterious. What is she trying to take Noah away? But, and it's trying to just push this angle of, you know, Elle needs to learn that Noah can be trusted. But then if you turn it around, she's the one that you can't trust. And that I'm going off tangent here, but even the, the way they describe at the start that they didn't speak to each other for four weeks and neither one of them wanted to message each other. It's like, you were out with each other. You were in a relationship for a month and it fell apart this quickly that you just couldn't communicate just to say, oh, by the way, are you okay at Harvard? Should I give you some space? They just completely ghost each other. But that's besides the point. But I don't know. It's just even now it's going on from the weird message and it's just nobody has like a real character arc because there is almost no character there, which which is the same problem in the first one. They have that bit at the Star Wars, you know, here's me and my best friend, this is my life. Oh, and my mom sadly passed away. And they mentioned that again in the second one, but as you were saying, Jack, there's no like discussion. There's no ever a scene that's like, how is this family coping? How is she coping with the, you know, the ramification of not having a mother in her life? Is the dad coping with it? Which I'm not saying the film has to go in being a full melodrama, but even just some kind of semblance that they're aware of it. But then that also goes against why I like the film because the film just doesn't have a clue what it wants to be so it just commits to being this hokey insane film where there's a dance dance revolution competition in the middle of it which plays to this amazing pop song but yeah I know what you're talking about them playing DDR not looking at the screen being literally off the machine and then getting a hundred percent accuracy I thought was peak cinema Martin Scorsese quite frankly could never accomplish something like that um, I want to push back a little bit on what Lena said in a couple of ways. First off, that the Noah character was like better in this movie because we're, yes, morally he's better. That's one thing that legitimately bothered me is he's completely unrecognizable as like the character that he was in the first film because they needed him to be like, oh, the protagonist, well, 
he's played as being a mixed character morally, but like they want him to be the decent protagonist, the decent boyfriend. So they just completely change how his character behaves and it makes no sense. But also with the runtime, it's not so much like the side plots of like Dance Dance Revolution, because yes, I understand you have to get her in love with like Marco and that made sense, but they're so slow and they just continue to repeat scene after scene after scene. We don't need that much time of the DDR competition, the training for it. And then I believe you had a scene on like a Ferris wheel where already her and Marco, like we set it up, but then they just continue to build it more and more and more, just completely unnecessary. You could complete what they do in like 45 minutes of a runtime in like 20 minutes and have a much, I mean, make it just much more watchable while continuing to accomplish the same exact thing. So I do agree with you guys that it is too long. I did say that like the subplots are necessary, but they could have been shortened. Um, and then in regards to Noah's character being completely unrecognizable, I feel like I disagree with that because I remember there are like points where Noah is like making a conscious effort to like be better for L. So I think that's why he's so different in this one because he's trying to like be the best boyfriend for her. He's like trying not to ruin everything. And especially like with being long distance, long distance is hard. I've never, I've done it like once and it went terribly. But my little sister, she did it. She went off to university last year and her boyfriend of like, again, three months, same thing as the kitchen booth, went to like a different school. And I'm so mad at her. I was like, Sarah, you're making the biggest mistakes of your life. Um, but you know, it's working out for her now. So I guess that's good at least. So maybe it'll work out for like Noah and Elle. I don't know. And then the other thing is, I don't understand what's going to happen in the third movie because the ending for this one clearly sets up that there's going to be a third movie. And then like a couple of days later after the movie Kissing Booth 2 came out, uh, they announced like, oh, it was the third one of Solomon's Secret. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, so I don't understand what's going to happen because yeah, Marco's there. Her and Noah are happy. I mean, it feels like it's going to be like a complete rehash of like a love triangle for the second one. So I don't understand what they're going to do. It's just strange how the Kissing Boom 2 has, has, has got this big in regards to, I think the first one was sort of this hidden, I wouldn't say it's, I wouldn't probably say it's a hidden, but I think it was a, um, a film that sort of just developed to have a cult following where this one, strangely, has, has got a little bit more to it where there's a, there's a huge following. So in regards to the Kissing Boom 3, like you said, like how this sets it up for the third one, I mean, I, not to get like, um, rather rather into like politics here but I, I come from sort of like a working class background so when I'm watching um, someone who's might be the same age as me or a bit yeah, younger so, so if I'm having to watch someone who's incredibly rich incredibly privileged who lives in the Hollywood Hills choose between Berkeley or Harvard and have an existential crisis I'm not there again this film's not here it's not made for you know for me my, my personality my, my, my cinematic likes and dislikes so I can understand that, but there's just so much here where I find it so frustrating. But the biggest thing, and I'll just go back to what Lena said about the film uh, Noah being quite problematic, is that I think that the film throughout has this sort of Benioff and Weiss sadism to it, where there is a scene and the writers write to a point, right, right, we finish the scene, but what can we put back in there where we, we can get someone to have an issue with someone else? And they choose the worst, most sadistic option. So they're having like a family dinner and then towards the end of the, I think it's in the second act. And then 
you have these, so I'll, I'll, sorry, I'll, I'll prelude to that. In each and every scene, like I said, there's an issue. So you get through a scene, an issue, you get through another scene, then an issue. And then these issues just, just sort of like build up, build up, and then some of them are forgotten about, and then they're echoed again. It's just this constant build up of issues between characters. And then you have this second act where there's, a, there's like a meal and it's the most cringeworthy, awkward, unintentionally and, and, and not purposeful awkwardness where it all just comes out in a matter where it's like comedic embellishment. And I, I often found myself going, going back through it, ironically enough, even though I hated this film. If you go back through it and you, and you look at it, it's just the writers think that to be problematic is, is to create like a confrontation. But that, that's not the way you do it. I mean, I think that's the issue in the first film, Alina, about Noah. Like, that character is so... There's definitely a misogynistic undertone to that character. And I think that, that the film, this one, realises that, writes him out, but they still need that misogynistic undertone. So instead, they just make um, uh, Joey King's Ella the most difficult character to be against. Because ultimately, like, she destroys a friend's relationship with her girlfriend, with his girlfriend. She destroys her own relationship. She, she doesn't have a relationship with a brother or a dad. She has an issue with uh, the family that she's, she's with, which is, I believe, of best friends. They just write problematic uh, story acts constantly, but there's just never any like, confrontation there. And for, for the film to go to its third, um, to its, its third feature, there's only so much you can write controversy, or not controversy, confrontation to the point where it just it, it becomes so overarching and so overindulgent that it's going to be so painful to watch. Now, if this film, like I said before, if it has an arc where they come together and there's like a reason for it and then, you know, there's an organic, authentic relationship uh, being developed or, or how that dissolves, whatever, at least then it feels natural. Whereas this is just 10 minutes after 10 minutes of, right, he does a shitty thing, she does a shitty thing, they're shitty people. And it builds up, and then you're meant to like these people, like the, the, like you said, Kyle, you said, Cass, like we, we joke about the uh, the uh, dance uh, thing, but like to do that to someone is horrific. Yet nobody seems to ever have an issue with it. Like it just goes to the airport, and then you have this scene where it's like, oh, well, do you really love her? And he's like, yeah, and they get back together, but nothing's ever said. Like what she does to Marco, nothing's ever said. So if this is either unwritten arcs to go into a third one I can understand that but on, a, on this film alone and not to keep on going on but again nothing comes together and it's just problematic after problematic behaviour for characters and after a while that type of behaviour becomes incredibly toxic to, to withhold so any anyone finding like this to be like <laughs> I don't I, 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 cannot, I can't see anyone genuinely liking this which I don't want to like, if you do, I don't mean like, oh, you, you've got a horrible opinion, my opinion is right. Just, I just find it so stressful to watch. Like I'm actually sweating bullets talking about it. Like it just pains me to, <laughs> to have to discuss this. So I've got a lot to unpack there, but I think one of the key things that really struck with me, which was why probably one of the reasons I hated the first one was the way you're right when they use problematic elements to create plot. Because especially in the first one, I, a lot of the male characters are like so misogynistic and they kind of play up for laughs, especially at the start of the film when they've got the, you know, when she comes in with a short skirt and that's how she ends up talking to a couple of guys, which I think in this film, they don't do it as much. You're right. But they definitely also kind of like I was saying before, they just chuck stuff to the wind and hope that it makes some kind of narrative point interesting. 
maybe like just to create character tension, which hilariously, as you were saying, comes up at the mule scene, which for me was just like the antithesis of why this film worked for me. But by the point, there's just all these teens sitting around at a table and the fact that their parents are right next to them, completely silent, just not even like, right, guys, let's leave this for the, you know, after dinner. They're just letting it all happen. Molly Ringwald's there getting paid for her one line in the film. And they're just all watching this, you know, it's, it's silly teen drama, I guess, like kicking off and nobody comments. And it's, so I can't get my head around that they were filming that or they thought, oh, this is, we're taking this seriously or let's make the runtime even longer. It's hard to tell if they're aware of, like you were saying, Jack, it's becoming a bit of a meme. And I don't know if Netflix are even aware of that, which makes me worry, which you hinted at, Carson, that are they going to make the third one three hours long? And at this point, it wouldn't even shock me if they're aware that people are memeing on the fact this is two and a half hours long. Well, let's go shoot extra scenes to make it three hours. Because it's, it's free publicity at the end of the day. If you go, they've, they've, you know, they've beaten themselves, they've went for three hours, and I can kind of see it. But also another point that I don't know if I'm like overstepping here, but there's this, like, not even a subplot, it's a sub-sub-sub-subplot where... um. A character comes out as gay and it's just nothing's done with it it's I, I can't even begin to understand why it's there and obviously representation is good representation but in the film it feel it felt just so not even forced there was just something about it really because it's towards the end as well it's just why have you chucked this in with no depth given to any of these characters just i don't know there's something about it that's really strange but like you were saying alina where can you that kind of leaves you at the point where the the hell does the third one go from here? Like, unless they are just going to throw any care to the wind and just make it three hours long and just do the film again. But I can't even begin to wrap my head around where they're going to take a third feature trying to extend this, which I know after saying all that, you must wonder how do I even like this film? Which at this point, even when I think about it, I was like, why do I like this film? And I think it must be, I think part of it is the meme culture, to be honest, with this whole just maybe the fact of being in lockdown and then this two and a half hour kissing booth film comes and you're like, okay, I'm on board for this. But it is just the the sheer audacity of how cringeworthy and stupid most of it is. And I keep going on about the DDR scene, but I, I can't stress enough when I was watching, when I was sitting staring at my television, watching these two people dance to this song in front of thousands of people to, to this pop song. I just couldn't, I was like, this is amazing. There was something about it. And just the, the, like when she kisses him, and then I started. Then I started getting involved with the Team Marco stuff. As I was getting way too into it, and then it ended. And then I think maybe after a week, the hype has died down. So I've started to level out and realise that this film is pretty terrible. But I still absolutely enjoyed it. Okay. So what I was going to say from before was talking about Elle's character. Uh, I fully understand where you guys are coming from with her always making like problematic decisions. But we also have to remember that she's literally a teenage girl. That's what teenage girls do. And as a former teenage girl, like, this is like five years ago that I was in, like, high school and being dumb. I, like, we don't need to go through my whole high school childhood trauma. But uh, myself and, like, all my friends made terrible decisions with, like, boys. And so I don't think it's fair to slam her for that because – we have to remember she's 17 and everybody's done dumb shit in high school. So especially with relationships, so like let her, she's 17, let her enjoy her life. She's allowed to break some hearts and make bad choices because she's 17. She can fix it all. 
so also about the representation and the like gay relationship thing i totally forgot about that until you mentioned it because it's such a minor plot point i can't remember the kid's name who's friends with l who like happens to be gay and i was writing my review for it for the kissing the two for flip screen and i was trying to figure out what his love interest was and like after all this googling i literally couldn't find anything other than his character name being the school president he doesn't even have a freaking name so what's the point of having this gay relationship uh, maybe okay apparently his name is randy and ollie but still on the internet i couldn't find his name so that just shows how minor and ridiculous and like unneeded that relationship is and Okay, not unneeded, but unneeded in the sense that they didn't do enough with it to make it needed. And it was like dumb. And that was a plot point that could have been cut out or replaced something better because it was so dumb. It just like came and went and it just affected nothing. It affected nothing in the entire movie. I want to thank Jack quickly for being able to pull those names right off the top of his head. Uh, just shout out to him for having that extensive kissing booth knowledge for the podcast. Um, just quickly going off what uh, you both mentioned about the queer um, element of the film. It's pretty much just what Disney does. Or I, Also, Kyle, I understand why you like this because I watched all 50 hours of 13 Reasons Why. And despite it being a crappy Netflix show, had the best time. Look forward to it. Watched it midnight when it came out every season. Um, but it's similar to what Disney does. It's similar to what Netflix themselves did in 13 Reasons Why in season four, where they just make characters gay just for the sake of having gay characters. I will say where it adds nothing to the plot, at least, at least I didn't see them going around publicizing it like Disney does. Disney will put it in one scene and go around and say, hey, we're doing something groundbreaking. So I can't be as mad at Netflix for this. Um, but sure, it's nothing of substance, doesn't really belong, but you know, it also doesn't hurt much, I would say, compared to what Disney does, um, just being assholes about it. Um, but what I was going to mention before closing out my thoughts on the runtime is also it doesn't even pay off, like, very clear setups that it creates. It goes to the um, arcade, and our main characters see that there's a new person, MVP, who've taken the top of the scoreboard, immediately setting up, oh, there's going to be um, a reveal. Who is MVP? You're thinking for maybe 20 minutes, you know, all the characters with M names, though, who is it going to be? And then they just, like, blandly, very casually reveal it, and it just adds nothing. Um, so even in the setups that it, the film set up, that like, okay, it's cliched and uninteresting, they just like blandly do nothing with them, which I felt very, very frustrated by. It is a film with zero nuance whatsoever. There's just, there's no scene where, there's, there's no subtlety whatsoever, even with Randy and Ollie, which are, are my two favorite characters. And I, and I say that with the least amount of irony what's possible. Because I think they're the only two characters that have an organic arc where I was I was genuinely hoping that they would be together. There, there's a scene on the beach where it's Joey King L has this wonderful sort of um, Professor X ability to read someone's mind, and and she, she you know she confides into into the character. Uh, I, I believe I don't know if it's Randy or his all, but um, she confides into me and I say you know just ask ask him out, and he's like what no no. And from that moment, I was like, I have to see this go. I have to see this end. I need to see these two together. And it's just the way them two look at each other. This, And it's the only, probably I'm going to contradict myself, it's the only time where there is subtlety there, where it's just like this faint look, you know, and there's the obvious look away quick, you know. It's like, like Alina said, the, the one thing I think, again, like it, it does 
and I'll go on to it in a second as well, there's an interesting idea of how it showcases high school life. And I think that little snippet of, of, of life there was very interesting to me. I, I, I sort of really was into the fact that there was like this unwritten secret where these two, I mean, what, one of them most definitely um, has feelings for the other, however the other one, um, I think it, it, it's not so clear. So it was always interesting to follow that, that arc. Regarding the kissing booth, uh, booth itself at the end, that, that moment where though that art comes together, for me, was generally the biggest payoff I could find because I was hoping deep down that, that, that Vince Marcello, the, the director, would have some bottle to actually showcase on that on screen. Because as, as we say quite often on this podcast, Carson, I mean, we talk about representation. I think we, we've both got um, ideas of, of, of what that can be. And I think this is something where, granted, it's not integral, but it didn't feel like tokenism either for me. It just felt like it was an organic, authentic little relationship, probably the only one in the film, even though there's a primary love triangle. But I will have to say before I move on, just my other point, that those two not getting prom king and queen, for me personally, and I'm completely, it was a fucking travesty. there. The fact that they had the bottle to set that up and then not fall through on it, I was so disappointed because it just screamed doing something different. And I, and I think it's a good idea of how the film talks about misogyny as well, how it talks about toxic masculinity and femininity and masculinity in itself. It was an interesting point to put forward. And then it would also elevate and heighten the comments it's made on itself beforehand, especially with Jacob Arodi's character. The one thing I do want to mention, though, is that I've, I've said that the film has got no subtlety except for that little arc. The interesting point here is the high school mentality, where in the beginning, as soon as Joey King's character... One also when you talk about like, I have a slight issue, and I don't know if this this is me or, or if I'm seeing this wrong, but the the film hypersexualizes that that school beyond belief, especially the females characters, and and, and I can't remember if you said that Carson or Cal beforehand, but in the first film about the skirt, like if that's not problematic, I don't know what is. So this time around, I thought they would level off that a little bit. Yet there's this like hypersexualization all the time with it not so much with the male characters as well, which was like even more problematic. It just felt like that simple, like, you know, get that, um, I don't want to use a certain word, but it feels like it's sexualizing the, the female form through uh, the fetish of like the schoolgirl uniform. And I just felt it was, it was just, it was very out of touch for what this film was trying to showcase, even though I don't think this film has much to say. But I think the one thing that get the film gets wrong, and ironically, it's it's so unsubtle about it, is the high school um, drama. I think it personifies that really well, especially when she walks into it the first day back and uh, after the you know the the I don't know is it summer break? I'm not too sure. And there's a rumor going around about their breakup, and it engulfs the school. I was like, yeah, that's probably that would probably what would happen. You know, as Alina said, she's a, this girl's only 17, but there's still like. It's all relative, I suppose. For, for me personally, I, I wouldn't see that as an issue, but I'm not 17 and I'm not a young girl who's, who's going, going to go through uh, life at that age very different to how I went as a male when I was 17. It's a very different, different arc. And I thought they had something really interesting to say about that. Yet again, like Randy and Ollie, they just don't follow through on it. And I think, follow through on it, sorry. And, and I think, as what you said, Carson, it sets up everything in 130 minutes, but there's just no payoff of anything. And with how the film ends, that arc about her school life is is now gone. I mean, they graduate at the end of the film, not like a spoiler, 
we will never see Randy and Ollie again, except for a, a small cameo, which I'm good about. It just feels like, you know, when we, we talk about trilogies, I remember the one thing, and I hate to bring this up, but the one thing people leveled The Last Jedi for is that it had no character depth. But it's difficult to sort of assess that when it's one part of a third part story, you know? It's, it's just really difficult to sort of assess one small character in a, in, a, in a trilogy or in a saga, because ultimately that will have an impact. Whereas this, I don't see anything running through, except for the, 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 the love triangle. So what we get here is what we get. And unfortunately, none of it comes together whatsoever. No storylines, no character depth, no arcs, drops of hints here and there, but there's just nothing. So for me, I'm not just mad at it because I hate it. I'm also mad at it because it, it generally does have comments to make about society. It does like having a, a um, um, just, just a, a, you know, one parent trying to survive in, in that sort of economic pressure has it there, doesn't take it. They're talking about, you know, juggling relationships at 17, which again, we're going to move on to our next film next, which I think does a really good job of that. And the film after that, in fact, does a better job than this and there's issues on both of them. So there's everything here to make a competent film, but it just chooses the Riverdale option where it's, it goes, it, it becomes so over like it's not even covert anymore it's just loud and proud about how poor it is and i think for a film that has the topics it does of this specifically sort of lets everything down i think it's what you were saying you know you find you feel quite weird getting this angry not angry at it but hating this much but when you mention that it's kind of fair to like get that angry at it the way it doesn't handle these issues well or doesn't make enough you know what you were saying it, it goes to make comments on these topics and then doesn't but then when you take into consideration how big this film is and how, I mean, we've seen it was like in the top five films, watched maybe number one, the, like the reach this film's going to have that it could have said something and not even important, but just something of substance for somebody who's watching it, who it, who it does relate to, who is a 17 year old girl or, or boy or anyone who's relating to these issues, but rather that it just opts to keep chucking stuff and hoping that the film can keep going and keep you entertained to a point rather than being like, oh, let's take a look at an issue, which, again, for certain reasons why, which you mentioned Carson tries to do things like that and fails miserably because that show just went off the rails as well, which I guess you could compare to this, but with certain reasons why, it's like they just pick a, something out of a hat and say, okay, let's tackle this, which I guess you could give credit to at least they're trying, whereas this film isn't even attempting to try. Like One that sticks out to me is the relationship between Elle and their best friend, Lee, which there is something there, you know, you can, like going into like when Harry met Sally, can people be friends without being in a relationship? What issues does that cause? Which is a subplot in the film, but it's too big a topic to be a subplot in this love triangle that's doing its own thing because, I don't know, the, the um, Lee's girlfriend, who's hardly in the film, is kind of treated awfully by Lee to an extent because he spends all, her time, all his time with Elle and dealing with her issues. And of course, there is that point in the film where they fall out because of that. But it's just, I don't understand why the film doesn't decide to look at that issue of, you know, because what Lee did, he just didn't communicate with his girlfriend and say, okay, I understand your issues. Um, we can talk about this. And I can speak to Elle. Rather, just, again, he ghosted her because the film seems to think the only solution to any issue is just to ghost someone until you're at dinner for Thanksgiving and then you just shout at each other and then you go dance and then it ends. But again, so part of me is like this film should have said something and given some, you know, not help. It doesn't have to give help, but just something, like something to grab onto. 
but it just doesn't. And I think even as with the stuff like the skirt, which we we both said was an issue in the first one, the film treats it as like fan service. So rather than even addressing in the first film that that stuff was like over sexualization of teenagers and allowing characters to be misogynistic with no commentary, they bring it back in the second one as a throwaway joke. Like he gets with the skirt again. It's like, oh, I remember that from the first one. Or he even gets like, oh, I remember the kissing before doing it again for some reason. It's just not even a willingness to, because it's less problematic than the first one. But I don't even think the filmmakers knew that the first one is problematic, which is worrying. So they're not even addressing any of the issues from the first one. At the end of the day, I think the Kissing Booth 2, much more than the first film even, is not trying to be like a legit, like impactful film where it's tackling issues. So I find it interesting that you guys were just dis- like, you had that on your mind because at no point was it like, oh, they should be covering like a real issue. Unlike 13 Reasons Why, which is trying to be like a legitimately like interesting look at these real life issues and just completely fails becoming one of the most problematic pieces of media ever created especially with the sequel. This is a series that knows it's trash. It knows who the audience is. It knows what got people talking about the first film that made it iconic. And it's just doubling down. So despite me hating the film, I actually don't like, I respect the film because it's just doing what it like, it is not trying to put up a facade or trying to be something it's not. It knows exactly what it is. Um, And I think if you go in expecting just a trash teen movie, you will be bored, undoubtedly. It's not even funny to laugh at for most of the runtime. But at the same time, it's hard to judge the film because it's trying to be a shit movie and it it accomplishes it. You know, it's kind of like The Room. You know, yes, it's terrible. Yes, it's not poignant. But like at the end of the day, it's being exactly what it needs to be. And I cannot like judge the film for that. Just before we move on, I just want to ask this question to everyone because I think it would be very fascinating to, to, to hear what people say. At the end of the film, Joey King's character has a decision to make and that's the big setup for, for part three. What decision do you think she will actually make? I think she's going to, like, I think she's going to go to Berkeley and I think she's going to stay with Noah. Like, I think Marco's going to cause some problems in the next movie, but... I think the whole thing that's been happening with the kissing booths is like Noah and Elle are like the ones for each other. So in gross, I don't like that, but I think that's what's going to happen. <laughs> um, so it's a great question. It's a loaded question, but I think, yeah, there are, like you were saying, there's two ways it's going to go. It's either going to just keep Marco and they're going to draw out. I don't know if they're going to even let her go to university in the next one, but I think she is it Berkeley. She goes. She wants to go to originally. She should go there because that's where you know, rather than just following her boyfriend. But I feel like unless by the end of the third one, her and Noah break up in this big dramatic scene, she's probably going to go to Harvard with Noah. Um, part of me still thinks, and I know it won't happen, that she's going to end up with her best friend. I don't know why. I just have this in the back of my head that they're going to just pull that card at the end, be like, oh yeah, they're actually in love now, and then that's it. Um, I personally, I'd rather she, it just goes completely off the rails, like Carson said with certain reasons why. Just completely, just give up and just go crazy. Let Marco lose his mind. Let there be a fight scene or something, but there won't. It's just going to be the same drama. So she'll probably, she'll probably go to Harvard. 
this is probably me giving the story and filmmakers too much credit, but they've already done the conflict of being away from her boyfriend and trying to do that long distance. I fully expect her to go to Harvard and then have to deal with her best friend making new friends and their lives actually being separated, considering that's like new drama. But as I mentioned, that's probably giving them too much credit. They're probably going to do the exact same thing they did in the other two films. So probably she's going to go to Berkeley, but I'm going to be bold. I'm going to have faith in them and I'm going to say she goes to Harvard. I'm going to go on that bold uh, bandwagon. I'm going to say that I don't think she'll go to either. I think that she'll get a job working at a company in uh, in California. I think she'll stay there to help her dad and her brother. I just I just feel like, like you said, Carson, not to give the film any more credit, but will it really reuse the third plot again in the same way? Probably, but it just can't. Can it? Just, just for my own sake, I don't think they can do it, but who knows at this point. Honestly, I think we'll have to wait until 2021 to find out. I would actually quite like if she did have the conflict of being with her best friend, because I'm thinking about how we could implement the kissing booth in the third one, like the physical booth itself. So you have both brothers on the kissing booth and she has to decide which one to go kiss. I think that would be really peak cinema there. I think that'd be really solid. Let's move next to Yes, God, Yes. Would you look at how these gorgeous pines contrast against the blue sky? Isn't God's paint palette just magnificent? So did I tell you Nina told me she liked my hair this morning at breakfast? Mm-hmm. And she said she can't do it with her own hair because every time she tries it, her hair gets all bumpy. So I said I could show her how I do it, and she said she would invite me over sometime. Isn't that cool? Yeah. I mean, you can come too, of course, if you want. Well, maybe I should ask Nina first if it's okay that you're there, but... I mean, do you even want to come? <gasps> oh, my God! Are you okay? Everything okay here, troops? Oh, comrade. It's quite a battle wound. Uh-huh. Can you walk? Alice, a young innocent Catholic girl, is tempted into masturbating after an AOL chat suddenly turns sexual. However, she is conflicted as the act would be considered a sin. Alina, let's start with you. So, Yes, God, Yes is basically a feature-length version of Karen Maine's short which I haven't seen and I'd really like to after this movie because I just loved this so much. It's such a great coming of age film that's just riddled with Catholic guilt. And you don't even have to be religious to relate to this movie as a teenage girl because like, even if you don't go to a Catholic school, you still have all this judgment around like female sexuality, especially in high school. Like in high school, it's very like, you're a slut if you sleep with a boy or even your boyfriend, but then the guys are all cool for sleeping around with girls. And so I think this movie does a really good job of taking on uh, female sexuality in film. I really loved it. Alice, the main character played by Natalie Dyer, is really great. She's very quiet and she doesn't have a lot of dialogue, but I think that works because she's very introspective and what's going on around her like a lot of the movie takes place through her own observations and her own eyes as she's like trying to navigate um this catholic sin versus pleasure that she should be allowed to experience so i really really loved it and i think it's amazing that so many movies now are normalizing female masturbation for teenage girls like 
this one very much so. It happens in Ladybird and Hollow with like the bathtub scene and even going back all the way to the to-do list with uh, Aubrey Plaza. It's just good to show that it's okay for girls to ex explore their sexuality. Yeah, I saw this film about a month ago and I've been championing it pretty hard since. I really, really love this film. I think it is just so enjoyable, not just for the acting and the screenwriting, which in a lot of ways reminded me of like Booksmart, um, both coming to age and just smart comedy. But also I think the overall setting of this taking place in the early 2000s, as someone who grew up during this time, I think it's impossible to watch this film and not get a wave of nostalgia for the internet and what it meant. And it was brand new and everyone was learning it. Um, and AOL Messenger and all this fun stuff. I think it really transports you back into this time that isn't normally explored in cinema just because it is so recent. I think that is a breath of fresh air. But the film is also like to a point kind of haunting, not to the same degree as something like The Miseducation of Cameron Post. But this is an exploration of how just being a teenager and exploring your sexuality and to be clear that film is queer, this film isn't necessarily. Um, and how like the conflict within that and validating the conflict this is a film that makes it very clear like because as someone who's not religious it can be difficult sometimes to see like the weight of being religious and everything but when you're constantly being told as a child like oh if you sin you're going to go to hell forever and you're going to be you know face this permanent damnation it really is haunting to see just the stakes and it's completely understandable why so many struggle for so long and to such a degree with balancing being a human and having these normal desires and wanting to you know have pleasure and just explore that self but also then understanding like oh the conflict the consequence is amplified to this huge degree and I think they handled that in a way to where you still have all this comedy and enjoyment and it still is just like one of the most fun films of the year. Um, but it also perfectly explains and validates the concerns and worries. And I just think it's a really wonderful balance that Karen Maine finds. I, uh, I agree with both of you on this one. Um, to just to begin with, uh, as what Alina said about the, the short film, I haven't seen that for context. However, I'm always slightly trepidatious when a short film is given feature length treatment. I think it's far easier to condense narrative rather than stretch it. But thankfully, I think Yes, Good, Yes does a really good job on the latter. I mean, it's a whimsical, yet completely compelling come-of-age tale through the eyes of a teenage girl in a religious background. I mean, it's both interesting and engaging, but like Alina said, it's very rare, and on occasion, that we get a story like this told from that perspective. And I think, I'm really glad you brought the to-do list up with Aubrey Plaza, because to be honest, that's the last type of film within that tone and genre, very similar to this, that that had um, that has a following. I mean, like you said, Carson, we, we've got stories similar to this, and, and more importantly, there's queer stories similar to this, but nothing that takes um, more of a lighthearted tone on what happens in this film. So I, I think for, for the most part, I, I really enjoyed this. I mean, it explored like a whole host of issues uh, effectively in self-confidence, relationships with oneself, as well as that difficult uh, balance between um, what you personally want and, and, and the expectations of, of religion. Um, but the one thing I, I really, really liked about the film is that throughout, regardless of what actually happens with character acts, nobody ever resorts to judgment. There's never like this overarching field where you feel that someone is judging someone else i mean there is one obvious thing about that there's this like sort of it starts off like this comedic thing i mean like i said about the kissing booth that there's um there's like a 
an issue about rumours and the school where I think it handles it very poorly whereas this I think it handles it very well um, with actually like quite a lot of effective nuance um, and I think it's interesting to see how, how that perception is for a young girl especially finding herself not only in a normal school environment but in this one which is heightened due to more a lot more um, uh, issues and, and caveats but um, it's interesting because it just never takes the idea of judgment like uh, Natalie Dyer's character never judges anyone else even though she witnesses a lot of things throughout the film where she is tormented by not because um, these actions are horrific but she's being told to repress certain things and then she's seeing the same people who are telling her to repress those emotions indulging in it so it's interesting how it, it just never uses that judgmental um, attribute but it's also aggravating because like I said it feels like slightly um, I wouldn't say hollow is the wrong word to use but it feels like because it's it, it never it never does use that judgment it's very difficult to sort of find the film where it weaves between protagonist and antagonist throughout the film you have um certain characters like i said who are telling uh, providing uh, natalie dyer's character as as um as, as figures of, of trust and and education and on how to um um to go through life and, and, and to show her a really good um, um path yet those very characters are doing some certain things where she, Natalie Dyer gets tormented about and she, she stays up at night and she's struggling to find a place in the world after being told to oppress these feelings. And it just, I found it, I found it very difficult to sort of, I was just hoping that there was going to be a final act. And we do get it to a certain degree where there's like this moment between Natalie Dyer and another character where she, she, she pretty much explains, she tells exactly how she's, she felt, but she doesn't do it in a judgmental way, but it just feels like the audience is just sort of like, waiting for this fire and this furious nature of Natalie Dyer's kept to just break out and, and, and just say, no, this is not how I want to do it, blah, blah, blah. But that never comes, but it's not, an, it's not a detrimental thing whatsoever. But um, I think Dyer, speaking of, of Natalie Dyer, I think she seems to be like the last Stranger Things alumni to really get off the ground. I mean, Joe Kerry has this wonderful um, fan following with his hair, but he's another actor who's not really gone and jumped onto the, uh, to, to, to anything else rather than strange things. The four main um, child, child actors, should I say, have, have all done um, their own little thing, but more so Natalie Dyer uh, and, and, and Joe Kerry. They haven't really done anything, especially uh, the other kid. I can't, I can't remember his last name, but uh, I think his first name's Charlie. Um, so for this to come out, I, I was really glad to see Dyer being able to strut her stuff. She's only really had small bit parts of her career, not a thing like a leading role capacity like this. I mean, the last thing I saw her in, which was in very, 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 very small role, is Velvet Buzzsaw, which I don't think anyone saw. It's probably three people and me. But um, Dyer, for the most part, I think she's, it's a really strong performance. She's likable, charismatic. But I think, I think she's an actress that has issues with her emotive performance because I think she's often relegated to evoking uh, like this shock visual sentiment rather than anything else. And throughout... It, it's almost like she's got one emotion that she showcases to everything. But I don't think that's a detriment to the film. I just think Daya herself, I mean, she hasn't got a lot of credits to her name. And with that, she hasn't worked with a lot of people. I mean, working on, on, on one thing for what, for what I think is now six years almost, you're in a certain environment where you, you can't learn anything more than you already do. She's, she, she, don't get me wrong, she, she's, she's still an evolving actress like every performer is. But I think 
when you see someone leave a TV show, I don't think it's always got to be something that's a negative. I think sometimes you want to find fresh new things. I think this is just one step for Dyer to, to go from. So in that regard, I don't really have any complaint whatsoever. But I just want to end on one thing before we, we move on to the next person. That I think the 90s aesthetic is captured really, really well. Um, I, I, I sort of appreciate the fact that it, it, that it, it sort of cornered the story arc out where there was things that um, Natalie Dyer's character couldn't do. She couldn't just go on a laptop. She couldn't just go on a phone and indulge. Um, there's always that issue of finding out the sexual like sexuality or finding out sexual thoughts and feelings through the most obscure um, um, ideas and, and, and finding out your identity. So I thought it was an interesting art to go pre, um, pre-iPhones and, and pre-technological sort of uh, technolo- technological advancements. So I thought it was a really good um, story idea. Just to finally end though, not to go on and on, there's one thing I, I agree with you, Carson. I, I don't think the film does it purposefully, but I also found this extremely haunting at times we spoke about these two films before in our pride special but the miseducation of cameron post has a very similar setting to this and it sort of knocked me sideways when i i generally thought that they were a conversion therapy at one point but the film wasn't revealing that which i'm glad they didn't do because i think it goes a very different way there however that gray bland emptiness to rooms cafeterias just mass amount of space they're all wearing the same uniform. I just got, it just, it was just very similar to things like Boy Erased where it's just like going, going through like what feels almost like a concentration camp of sorts. Just this uniform, this grayness, this blandness, eating food that's not edible. You just had this very strange vibe. Now, I don't know if, uh, if Karen Min's trying to, um, try, trying to project that. If that's me reading into it, that's me reading into it. But there's most definitely a conscious decision on the production design there. And it's strange how this film, like, like you said, Cassie, it's most definitely not a queer film or it doesn't acknowledge the fact that it is. But it, it's strange because it, it has a lot more in common with stuff like A Boy Erased and Miseducation of Karen Post than The Do List for me. But I think it finds that balance for both audiences really, really well. So I just wanted to touch on what Jack was saying about the film not really having a lot of judgment. And I do agree with that. I find that uh, Natalie Dyer's character, she's, she's not judgmental at all. She's more, it's more of like a confusion that she feels like throughout the entire film. And you see that in the recurring gag with the whole, her not understanding what salad tossing is and no one will explain it to her. I thought that was just like the funniest thing ever. Um, but she's confused when she sees somebody at the camp giving somebody a blowjob or she sees somebody else at the camp watching pornography. So I find she feels, why am I going to hell for pleasuring myself when these people are doing things that are a lot worse? And they're also telling me that these things are bad and they're still doing them. So in that sense, it is very haunting because it feels like Alice thinks she's the only one that's like going through these things. And the other thing I wanted to touch on is I think Yes, God, Yes does a really good job with showing the female gaze. So, like, there's the part with that football player, I forget his name, and the, like, film just, like, focuses on his, his, like, hairy forearms. And I just thought that was great because it's, like, such a thing that, like, girls are into forearms. And I feel like most guys don't know that. Just, like, please show your forearms. We love it. Um... So I thought that was like good because 
we don't often see the female gaze either along with female sexuality. So I just, I just love how like much this film like touches on all those things. I normalize it for teenage girls. Like I think every single teenage girl and especially religious teenage girls should watch this and understand that it's okay to do those things. God isn't going to care if you're masturbating. Like I'm not Catholic, but I am Muslim. I don't think God has the energy to care if I'm masturbating. I really don't. So I think this is an important film for young girls to see. Just to really quickly touch on that female gaze, Alina, I think that's something that I think this film should pride itself on. Um, I, I, I see that's why I, I love that your perspective on it because I wouldn't have noticed that. Obviously, in the film, it's not subtle, don't get me wrong, but how it's shot is so like against type. Like the, the switch of gender just, for me, like, elevated that scene even more. And how man captures that with, with playing what may be the most evocative version of genie in the bottle i will ever hear in my life what a brilliant what a brilliant soundtrack to use a song choice to use in that film i thought it was so effective and i didn't see that coming whatsoever i felt like it was going to go for the comedy and, and and don't get me wrong it is it is funny but it's just it's so tender and like the the the, the extreme close-up of, of, of natalie dyer's eyes how, how how she's like just going through through his, um, you know looking at his body but she does it not in a suggestive, but in like something of awe. And that scene, like it's just so subtle, but it's so on the nose. And I think I think you're right. I mean, if that was the other way around, you can just tell it would be chest region, and then and then it would it would just be something rather um, uncomfortable to watch because it just goes across that line. However, this I thought was really well done. And and again, like you said, the female gaze in this film throughout. Um, Really, really tender, really quaint, and again, the ju- the judgment, th- the judgment thing. Even the camera never feels judgmental. It's always this identity. The character is the eye of Natalie Dyer's character, and it feels like as it's witnessing something. It's 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 it is just that it's it's almost voyeuristic, where there's no time for judgment. We're witnessing this like that Natalie Dyer's character would do, and in that, there's like this really beautiful approach of honesty. But the one thing I just want to touch on before uh, you, Carson, not to cut you off or anything, is um, when I say, well, I think when I say that um, the, I don't think anything's judgmental, but I don't think Natalie Dyer's character is passive either. I think she's just learning about the world and everything is, is, is being thrown at her in such like a small time frame. She, she's having to find out things that take, well, I don't know, five or six years to, 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 to develop and, and to understand. And she's getting this this rumor around school that's not particularly nice she, she's understanding um, the, the, the the male form um, she's she's understanding herself the female form but this is all happening in the space of what feels like three or four days so I, I think I don't think I don't think it's it's not judgmental about how she sees the world or how she sees other people act but it's not passive either the way where she's she's getting you know run over or she's she's just getting pushed over I mean I just I think it's very well done how she is being educated on everything, if that makes sense. I think it's a film that's just really authentic. You mentioned even in The Kissing Booth too, we talked about like the sexualization of females, but also with men, like how they show the gay romance and the gay desire in that film is very on the nose and just very basic, unrealistic. In this film, thinking back to my time in high school as a gay boy, man, that arm hair made me feel something, you know, it's just authentic. It's a, it's a real story of real sexuality, 
of real just desire and going off the point of it's not judgmental that's i mean that's the point of the film is how it's dumb to judge people everyone is human everyone has these desires judging them and trying to make you something that you're not also putting everyone in the same uniform like you said jack and having everyone look the same everyone is human and you can't just strip away your identity just because it matches your religion no matter how much you want to um, I think one thing that's not been talked about yet is the runtime. It's a brilliantly short film. I believe it's like 78 minutes, really easy to get through, never outstays its welcome, which so many comedies, and I'm sure we'll talk about this possibly with the next film, but they just keep going on and on and on unneeded. This is a film that knows what it wants to say, portrays it in a very authentic way, and then gets out, which is something I completely respect. From what you're saying, I mean, I'm desperate to watch it now. It sounds brilliant, but... What's jumped out to me, you probably enlightened me a wee bit, um, from just reading the blurb about what the film is about, is the film, in terms of humour, because you said it was comedy, and, although it was, you said it was quite frightening, not frightening, but I don't know the words used, but it's tone, but would you say the humour is quite crude humour at all? Because from what you're saying, the film sounds like a film that young people should watch, as it's got an important thing you know, to say. And if I can know there can be a struggle if the film is marketed or even it's not for a young audience like the first example that jumped into my head was the film uh, blockers which came out two years ago which i really liked that film because it had this just this message we hadn't seen in films that often that was about consent and you just and it was marketed though as like a raunchy kind of late teen comedy which it is obviously for that crowd but i feel like a film like blockers should be shown to really young odd not really young audience, not kids but people in their early teens because consent is such an important message. Would you say that with this film, that's kind of similar that you'd want that audience to see this film to learn about the messages that the film's portraying? I'll, I'll just jump in here first. Just to regard the crudeness, I think this film is very, very subtle of how it, how it uses its suggestive material. Um, and even to that degree, I don't think it's suggestive whatsoever. I think it's really, really well done. That there are, there are moments of comedy here but it's not used again, going back to that judgmental thing or passive thing, it's not ever used against somebody, if that makes sense. There's no sort of one-note one target where, oh, this person um, is lonely in the cafeteria, so obviously she must, like, there's, like, in, in a, a few films I've, I've, had, uh, I've, I've seen, there's always this emotive where if you're a loner um, and you're a female, somehow you're a lesbian. Now, I don't know if anyone else knows, but that's always, like, a recurring theme in these high school movies, and here, I was sort of slightly worried that it was going to be a major factor because there's something that happens in the, in the uh, I think it's the third act, but it didn't, it didn't arise to that. I think it was really well done how honest and, and, and pure it was with a character who doesn't really talk at all in the film, but there's so much story there. I think it just goes to show that, um, you know, that there's, there's always going to be someone who's dealing with something or someone has to say, has, has a voice to say something as long as you just make the effort to talk to them. But going back to the crudeness, there's definitely comedy here about it. I mean, but it's all—it's more so sensual, sensationalized rather than it's crude. And even then, the comedy always acts back to something with honesty and something with with merit. You know, if that makes sense. I wouldn't—I I would say it's more of a drama first than a comedy. And I think comedy is a loose term here. I don't think it's—I don't think you'll—you'll you'll be sat here laughing with any jokes i think you're more laughing with the circumstance of how natalie dyer's character finds out about certain things there's especially like a moment where 
she's witnessing, as Alina mentioned, that she's witnessing someone, she's not difficult to sort of not spoil, but she's witnessing someone give um, uh, oral sex to someone outside. And then she, she gets slightly turned on by it and how she uses a certain object to, uh, to, to pleasure herself. And then there's sort of this snap cut of another, something that happens in the room. It alleviates the, uh, the that, that, I wouldn't say cringeworthiness, but it alleviates that, oh, thank God, like that's over, just because you don't want to be in that position. But um, again, it's never judgmental. It's never passive. Everything that happens here is always sort of goes back to the source, if that makes any sense. Yeah, as Jack was saying, it's not necessarily like a comedy as far as like there's a ton of jokes, but it's more of just like a charismatic drama where like any humor that comes of it is just the awkwardness of the situation. It's never like, oh, lol, she's masturbating. Oh my God, that's funny. But rather it's just like, especially just breaking down the AOL scene because that's what is mentioned in the blurb. Like the jokes come from the fact that it is AOL Messenger and the awkwardness of it and the awkwardness of the usernames rather than the actual action itself. But also I want to be clear, I think that blurb, like the plot synopsis that everyone gives about the AOL bit is just not good because that is just one piece of the puzzle to this overall story of a girl finding her sexuality specifically with the relationship with religion so don't go in expecting that to be like the film or even really the moment um it's much bigger than that just to put everyone who hasn't seen the film yet expectations clear it's not really about that that's just more of a moment in the film I'll just jump in here just before I lean it. The one thing I will say that I was slightly wary of is the fact that I was a little bit worried about the marketing here because I think it's very easy to do the exact opposite of what Carson said is, is, is to go the other way. And thankfully, the film itself doesn't, but the marketing, there's a, th- there's a fine line here because it's, 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 it's um, tagline is being bad has never felt so good. And I, f- I felt like that's probably one of the sentences that makes absolutely no sense within the context of the film because it's not, it, it's it's really not about Natalie Dyer doing anything to an extreme. It's a very honest, heartfelt um, exploration of self identity. It's it's never something that she she embroils in for the for the fact of you know because something is you know just to get the point. It just never feels like it's over central over sensationalizing anything. And even with the poster and the tagline, I'm sorry, and the synopsis, I think it sort of underwhelms. Um, anyone who's going to go think this is going to be this sex romp comedic thing like I wouldn't say book smart but something along those lines to that regard it's it's not like the to-do list in regards to how it executes and convicts on its um, sexual exploration it's, it's it's far more subtle there but the films do intertwine don't get me wrong it is, it is, it is a strange film. To, it is actually really strange to think about because the more I think about, it, the more I think it's just like a very subtle comedic um, instigation of, of something like. Let me say again, of Cameron Pose. It's just very strange how, how it's put together. But overall, but overall, I just hope that no one goes into this thinking it's going to be something it's not because I think it'll be a detriment to the to the final product. Last but not least. Let's transition to Beanie Feldstein's How to Build a Girl. Good evening, London. This is the place you come, where you can dance and scream and be with your own kind and where everything is possible. But how do I get there from here? When I was your age, you either became a boxer, footballer or a pop star. I'm going to be a writer. I know the impact a great book can have. For 
starters, I'm going to be a rock critic. I have an interview for the job. I'm Johanna Morrigan. <laughs> then I'm going to totally transform myself for £9.48. Good God, it's a child catcher. Nice one, babe. And then there's the arrival of the beautiful boy. Tell me about you. I went on a plane today for the first time. The journey of Midlands teenager Joanna Morrigan, who reinvents herself as Dolly Wilde, fast-talking lady sex adventurer, moves to London and gets a job as a music critic in the hope of saving her poverty-stricken family in Wolverhampton. Carson, let's start with you. Look, this is a film that's been on my watch list for a while, and the poster of Beanie Feldstein standing there with the red hair after Booksmart, despite hearing mixed things, you know, I loved her in Booksmart, I imagine it's going to be good. And quite frankly, it's just not that good. There's really three sections to the film. There's the beginning portion, which I thought was unbearably annoying, especially uh, Beanie Feldstein, which I'm sure we'll get into. But I found her to be annoying in this film, which is something I just did not expect. Um, Incredibly boring setup and incredibly just annoying. You have the middle portion of the film, which where nothing revolutionary, I thought was genuinely sweet at times. And I found myself starting to get into the characters um, and starting to get into the journey. And then you have the ending, the third act, which tries to be this really emotional and powerful look at being a critic and putting out, you know, negative reviews and what does it mean? And, oh, how should you treat others? And how much do your words matter? That just completely failed um, and brought the film down a whole star rating for me. This is a film that I thought, if it just played to be a very genuine, like just sweet, even if it's nothing incredible comedy slash romance film, I think it could have been okay but it tries to be so much more and just ultimately failed. So I went to TIFF last fall and this was one of the special presentations, I believe there. And I really wanted to see it because I had been hearing like such good things. And I really liked Beanie and uh, Lady Bird and Booksmart, but I just couldn't get around to it. Um, And now that I finally watched it, I'm glad I didn't end up watching it at TIFF. It was just really disappointing. I think I liked it more than you all did, but it was it was disappointing overall. I do agree with Carson that the middle portion is the best part. I think my main issues with it is I found a lot of it to be like just very cringy. Um, her like Beanie's whole like makeover scene. I I didn't like the costume. I didn't like the outfit. Didn't like the hair. Um, I know she's like trying to reinvent herself as like this like rock and roll like sex fiend and all these things and I like love rock and roll and it didn't feel rock and roll to me um and then the other thing is the whole thing with her dad and how her dad is like a deadbeat and like claims disability but breeds border collies and he like wants to try going back to uh trying to be a rock star and his band is named Mayonnaise I was like oh god why is it named Mayonnaise and it just like I find they didn't like explore that enough with like the relationship between her dad and him like trying to force her to like um, write about his music. Like they have a bit of like a tough, but it just like, I wasn't into it. I did really enjoy Alfie Allen in this film though. I think he was great. I didn't know he was in it. And I was like, oh my gosh, Dion Greyjoy, I love him. Um, I think he did really well as that rock star character. And I think him and Beanie had really good chemistry in the beginning during the interview, less so at the end of the film. But yeah. So I think I disagree with both you, Carson and Alina, that for, for some reason at the start, I was kind of into it. 
although I couldn't under I, I couldn't bear the the accent, which I think we'll we'll probably all touch upon later. Um, but for the start, I was kind of I was enjoying it. I wasn't loving it or anything. But as it just went on and her character became more aggressive and toxic towards her family, which I was the the kind of they want to resolve that, give her an arc. But I just there was something about the way they presented her arc I found really unbearable and I just couldn't get on board with her as a character or pretty much anyone in the film as a character the people she worked with which I know they were meant to be hateable but they were like disgusting the way it was just so over the top in the way that they treated each other and I just couldn't get into that plot at all so by the time it was wrapping up I just completely lost any connection with the film that I could enjoy it whatsoever what but it's a shame because I really like um, Beanie Feldstein as an actress from everything I've seen her and she's been great. So I don't know if this was just miscasting or just not the right role. I don't think her performance was the issue. I think it is just, I don't want to keep going on about it, but the accent is so grueling to get past. But I think as well, you touched upon it. I think, I think you touched upon it, Carson. The, the way they talk about criticism, because obviously that's one of the main plot points is she goes on to be a music critic. And it gets pretty convoluted in what it tries to say about criticism, which I know this is probably rich because we're all doing film criticism right now. But it's the try and push angle, you know, oh, if you want to be heard as a critic, you've got to be overly negative, which I guess is true to a point, you know, because people get platforms from being overly negative. But also, if it's in the film, if she, I know she apologises, but if you went on that tirade of being that horrible to every person in your industry, you wouldn't get another shot in it. And I don't know if the film's coming at it from a, you know, criticism can be a bad thing. I don't know if that's what the film's trying to say or it's trying to say, you know, criticism, you need to follow your heart and be honest and be true. But I just couldn't understand what the film was getting at. And then by the end, like you said, it was really cringy. And when she looked dead in the camera and broke the fourth wall, that was just the worst. I already didn't like the film, but that nailed it in the coffin. That like I didn't just didn't like it by that point. So one thing I wanted to say is how to build a girl is like the third movie we're talking about that has aspects of female sexuality in this. And in this case, it made me really uncomfortable um, because she is sixteen. She just happens to get this job at some rock magazine and is running to all these places all over the UK and like having sex with like rock stars and whoever they are. And I think the film like doesn't explore enough that she's 16, that's like gross and problematic. And I worry that it normalizes that because you first of all, you should not be having sex with underage girls. It's nasty and it's gross. It's gross for the men and it's gross for the girls. And I wish the film had explored that a bit more and I understand that this is based off a semi-autobiographical novel or something haven't read it so maybe they touch upon that more in like the book but it just made me really uncomfortable seeing like uh what is supposed to be a 16 year old beanie like fucking rock stars I was like no please no so like Alina when she talks about when when you know trying to get a screening for this. I also had a very similar issue where this was at one point, I had a great deal of buzz behind it. And after a viewing, it seems incredibly hard to see what the hype was surrounding it about. Because aside from Bina, who's had a great year, well, last few years, Lady Bird and Bugsmart, there's really nothing here. And I mean, I say that in, with, with the most um, respect, there's just nothing here. 
more so I can't believe I'm saying this there's, a, there's a, probably something more to go back in to watch The Kissing Booth 2 than this and I, I can see Kyle in the background <laughs> laughing but I, I, that breaks my heart to say that because everything here the, the jigsaw is here to be made I mean Beanie's had a, a great year she's so talented she's so charismatic naturally as well everything's so authentic with her as an actress but here None of it comes out. I mean, Paddy Gonsadine, who I'm a massive fan of. Anyone from England on Paddy Gonsadine is, is sort of like this um, underrated master of his craft as a director as well as an actor. Um, like you said, Alina, Alfie Allen puts a really good performance here. It's, it's, it's here for the first act, gone in the second, has a snippet on the third, and even then it's, it's nothing much to talk about. I mean, Frank Delane is an interesting um, actor to talk about. He's, you know, he's having a very interesting ride in the US and now he's, going back to the independent route um, here. So that's something to look out for. But I mean, it's just a film that's devastatingly bad. I mean, it's very reminiscent on, on, on the outside of, of something like Blinding by the Light, where we're, we're looking at working class families um, in the UK and we're twisting it and subverting the expectation in this roller coaster of rags to riches. Um, whereas Blinded by the Light takes far more uh, emphasis on, on on race and on privilege and on expectation and on on the social um, destruction of, of class. Here, there is, like Alina said, there's there's probably two mentions of, of them being uh, living in a certain predicament. That's one when the DSS comes, which is so 1980s, 1990s, unbelievable. I don't think DSS is, is, I don't think that's what they call it anymore, but they make light of it, which again, in Wolverhampton, and we'll talk, talk, I'll get on that in a second, that's something that's that's probably very 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 serious and 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 a thing that happens quite a lot in those poverty stricken areas of Liverpool and, and and you know Wolverhampton especially where families are on their breadline and here I don't think it is a particularly honest di dictation of, of showcasing that I mean and then there's the secondary thing where they lose the television and then somehow she's just starting to write again for a magazine in, in what I believe is London. All of a sudden, the television's here, the car's here. Um, narratively speaking, it's all over the place. There's no story arc whatsoever. It's just a jumbled up of scenes in montages, and then we're meant to just guess the middle ground. Very, very strange. There's, there's very weird conversations on misogyny here, and it's, it's, it's played for a joke. And one where Beanie, um, Beanie's character, um, or alter ego, Dilly, uh, he's Dilly Wild, um, is having to sit on someone's knee to then ask for a feature in the music industry. And he just felt so uncomfortable, but it didn't feel like he wanted to make the character, make the audience uncomfortable because it just brushed it off. And then there's, there's more instances, like you said, where she's having this sexual awakening and these romps. And again, it's, it's not something that's talked about with a nuance of that's slightly problematic for her age and how she, she's, she thinks it's something that, she, she's having an awakening when in actual fact these are the well how it showcases these are older men again like Alina said it's very uncomfortable um, and then there's a, some more scenes further down the line where it talks about sex again and, 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 and privilege and it just goes all right and then towards the end of the film in the last few minutes there's then this topic of self-harm and that's probably my, my most I think that's the most problematic aspect of this film is that a topic like that should not be simplified and thrown in at the last second. That needs a brevity to talk about. That needs an honest depiction um, where there's a conversation about it. 
there's just an off there's a, just one scene and then there's an offbeat comment towards the end when she breaks a fourth wall which i thought was also um quite problematic it's just a film that has a really bad issue of tone it thinks it's being progressive and it's showcasing these ideals in an honest authentic manner but in actual fact it's actually quite condescending for me in a lot of scenes um i think regarding the wolverhampton <laughs> accent <laughs> i think that out of that probably irish and 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 Americans have a very difficult ideal of, of 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 being able to sort of convict on that. So to choose an, a, a very and a very young American actress to come over and and to try and judge that role, I think is very miscast in my my eyes. But for the most part, I think Beanie does a relatively good job of the accent, even though it does slip. And and how she says like there's a, there's a word that she she says jo, jo, Joanna, but in England you don't really pronounce the H. In Yorkshire it's Joanna which is Johanna, Johanna. And it was like, no, that, it was just one of those things very, for, for the most part, nobody will probably really give a shit about. But for me, being in that predicament where I, Wolverhampton, Liverpool's not so far from me. I don't know about you, Kyle, but it just took me out of the film straight away. And it, it is, it's a detriment to my issue because I, I need to get over shit like that. But it's just that one little tiny thing where I was like, no. And then from that moment on, it's just like how they write the character in this, like, really strange manner I just I didn't feel compelled to be engaged whatsoever um there's a lot to unpack there's so much here where it just shoves it all in and I can and I can appreciate the intent and exploration but for me it's painful to watch I just want to end on one little thing which I think again probably won't be a big deal for a lot of people but for someone who's for me I have to watch shit like this every waking hour of my life and obviously I'm not asking for any pity but the fact that this is quintessentially British to a point of oblivion. I mean, you just go through the cast list here for cameos. You're talking about Emma Thompson, Michael Sheen, Sue Perkins, Alexi Sale, Lily Allen, Gemma Addison, Jamila, uh, Jamila Jamal, and then you've got Sharon Horgan, and these are all really successful um, actors and actresses, comedians in their, in their own right, but it's just thrown in here for the sake of just nonsense. Oh, Michael Sheen's there. Oh, look, Jim uh, Addison's playing Cleopatra. And at the end of the day, what was that there for? Except for just to show, oh, that's someone famous. I just thought it was so poorly done. And, and that's the problem with, and I think that to me is the Americanization of a British film, where that is somehow the biggest draw, where that then takes away from Beena and it takes away from Paddy Considine, these homegrown um, actors and actresses. Granted, there's most definitely this nepotism with Beena. I'm not, I won't dispute that. But again, I think she's done a great job to get away from her brother's shadow. And I think her films that she showcased, granted, I don't think she would have got them without being related um, to, to Jonah Hill. But, but I think I appreciate the fact that she doesn't have that Hill last name. She, she has a, you know, Philstein, which is Jonah Hill's real name. Um, but moving on to that, I think just the Britishness of it is just so badly handled which is so strange because ultimately it is a British film, but the American twang to it, it doesn't fit whatsoever and it just feels tone deaf at times. And we, we speak about this a lot where we, a lot of people <laughs> use the word hatred. I don't hate this film at all, but I think this is arguably one of the most disappointing films, if not of the year. And to that, with all the talent involved, I think it's actually pretty much a disaster. 
I think your comments on the accent and just overall the problematic aspects of this film leads to a bigger discussion of just how unauthentic it feels. You also mentioned how there is really no arc, and I feel like that is most felt in the transformation scene, where she seemingly embraces this alter ego of fundamental change. Beforehand, she is this nerd who has trouble talking to people to the point where she can't even go on the TV and say a poem unless she, you know, she screws it up. She gets very nervous. And then just all of a sudden she decides, I'm going to change. She gets a new set of clothes, dyes her hair, and then fundamentally has changed as a person, which just, that isn't how change works when you're human. You need to have more to it if you're actually going to change your fundamental who you are. And just continually, this film felt like it wanted to have this narrative arc of this girl changing and showing the negatives, but just never did the work to make the experience or the journey authentic. Um, which I think just goes to highlight your points of, oh, the accents are not authentic. The character's not authentic. They don't authentically handle things like self-harm, which if you're being authentic has this really, like, you have to deal with it in a very certain way, which the film doesn't. And just continually this film feels like it's being unauthentic, which really, really bothered me. And also just took me out of the story because it's impossible for me to engage, you know, deeply with something that's as unauthentic as this. I think we we touched on it briefly, the the way it touches on like her sexual awakening. And for me, one of the, the kind of plot points that I just couldn't get past was the her relationship with Alfie Allen because yeah, as she said, she is sixteen. And in a way, he is grooming her, if you look at it that way. And then it kind of comes to a head at the end where he addresses it. Because obviously she's in love with him which, you know, we see that in films a lot, you know, young people fall in love with their idols, but he, he says that weird line where she's like, I get it, or you're too old for me, and then he comes out of like, like, no, I'm too old for you, and like, I, I get what, I, I kind of, in my head, I get what you're trying to say, but I just don't understand why in this film that was never addressed, the fact there's this huge age gap between them, she's just having sexual relationships with all these older men, and then he doesn't there's just never that point he addresses the fact that he shouldn't, like, they can be friends, sure, but there is still just never that realisation of, you know, this is wrong and this we shouldn't even flirt with the idea of us being in a relationship because you're too young. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> problematic is probably not the word to describe it. I mean, that might be, a, be an understatement, but I think even when you look at the film in general and you look at it um, as an idea, I often find that if there's a if a character is from a certain place and it's such a specific place i always find that that should then ring reason there should be a reason for that and it should then go back into the film and with this i find that you can nitpick everything and not get anywhere with it for example this is this is caitlin moran's best-selling semi-autobiographical novel so it's a, it's it's based on her life but it, it takes um, no name and namesake why then is it why is it there's such a like a precedent of it being in the midlands what why is that there because ultimately it puts itself in a box and then you think well if it's in there there should be a reason but there's no exploration of it there's no exploration of class um poverty um of, of living on the breadline. not really it's almost a joke towards the end of the film i mean and then you've got this idea of you know why is it there then because you could just put it in London. And yeah, again, yeah, we see everything in London. But at least then, you, you help Beanie out with the accent. You help it more being this issue about, about uh, misogyny in, in, in the class system. Um, to that regard, at least it then helps the film. So you look at it on that way, like a, a really strong analytical view. I just, 
I, I really don't have any idea of, of certain things. I mean, at the end, all of a sudden, then she's going to go work for the BBC, what it, what it looks like, at News Corporation or whatever, doing a monthly column after she slated people um, and, and, their, and their livelihoods, and then it's just a simple phone call. For me, it's, it's, a, it's a film that really doesn't take sort of any um, explanation and acceptance of, of uh, how shit you can be. And then you have to live with that because it's easy just to solve this. I mean, granted, I think that the film does play with it a little bit, especially towards uh, Alfie Allen's character and how um, Beanie uh, Feldstein's character tries to amend that. And then it gets projected in this twisted sentiment. And, and I think that's an interesting idea. But even then, it's just, it's just forgotten about and moved on. And like you said, Kyle, their relationship at the end, God, that takes that, that. It's like some accountability there. It sort of just wakes up after its coma and goes, "Shit, actually, we can't do that. That's, that's weird. Like, we can't have like this thirty-four-year-old man and a sixteen-year-old girl." It sort of has this awakening after a hundred minutes. So often than not, here I just find that there's there's been some very strange decisions, and I think John Niven and, and Caitlin Moran. I mean, John Niven's. I mean, Caitlin Moran obviously um, uh, writes. The, the 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 source material don't me wrong but john niven is a very interesting one because john niven i wanted to bring this up earlier also wrote uh, kill your friends which stars um nicholas holt now that's a very similar film it's in the late 1990s it's all about drugs and it's all about climbing the industrial ladder of the music industry in london so those two films intertwine a lot and it's full of pricks and it's just it's a quintessential asshole how it, how it showcases them They'll still backstab. I mean, ironically, kill your friends because a bit too literal in that regard on that film. But those two films are very interesting. How it is a film about no remorse, and one of them is purposeful about that, which is kill your friends. But I, I felt that how to build a girl didn't need to go that direction, and it could a little bit more heartfelt and a bit more honest about it. But when you see when you see John Niven's writing credits, it sort of makes more sense. But I mean. Regarding being there, just one that didn't work out. I mean, again, I think it's very strange why she would gravitate towards this film because I think with what she's capable of and what she showcased, this for me is sort of like a step backwards. I think this would have been great for an up-and-coming um, Wolverhampton, Liverpoolian actress who's 15, 16 and have that authentic British sync drama so to bring... An American over, and I'm not I'm not saying it's got anything to do with that. I just think it contradicts its whole message. And I think by definition, if you do that, how then do you expect a respect or an engagement value to take it seriously? I'm all, I'm just sort of dumbfounded with the decisions here. I don't know how you two feel. I'd like to touch about uh, touch upon what you were saying about the fact that the film's set in the Midlands but doesn't do anything with it. You know, it's just kind of there. Um, this came up a lot university it's kind of on topic we would talk about films set in scotland um and kind of how you had kind of two sides you'd have films that were set in scotland who were about you know about scotland and what it's like growing up and especially so there's films like ken loach films for example like my name is joe they're set in like the the lower ends of glasgow where there's just people are poverty stricken and what that means like to be scottish and how that impacts your life and then usually with blockbuster and stuff like talk about Eurovision, it's just set there because why not? You know, you could film there. And I don't think you have to make your film about, you know, the area. But what's confusing is this film in this film is they touch upon the fact their family's, you know, poverty stricken and the dad's, you know, he's claiming benefits. 
but he's doing, you know, shouldn't be. But then the film never, like you were saying, it just never takes it anywhere. It just shows that they're in poverty and she's like, oh, I need to get out of this, you know, the cliche, I need to rise above my family. But then, as you said, she she treats them like shit for most of the film and then, so, which is just, she, she self-harms, they brush that, it's like she self-harms just to get them to the end of the film, which I hated that. It's just, to, they write themselves into a corner where they've made this character that's pretty much like irredeemable in the eyes of the character in the film. So, like, okay, well, if we make her self-harm, then I guess people have to feel sorry for her, which I hated that. And then it just, it just ends and nothing's nothing's changed. Okay, she's in a she's in a well paid job now, so her family her family are no longer have to be in poverty. Okay, so what what was the point of the last hour and a half? Is it just you can treat people like shit and hope that nobody holds it against you? Also, as well, it's it's really not a funny film. Defining this as a comedy, which it does itself, I think it's a joke and it's own right. I mean. Re- Speaking of that, I mean, I, I just I'm trying trying to like reminisce of a moment where I found it to be um, astutely comedic um, without being, um, you know, unironically so. And to be honest, uh, no, I, I, nothing comes to mind. I mean, there's an interesting sort of relationship with uh, with a brother that's interesting. It's not funner. I mean, Paddy Considine has one or two jokes um, about his career and then about you know obviously scamming the government. Both are played for laughs. But really, it's actually both of them are quite sad depictions of, of, of you know, having to grow old and, 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 and make decisions that you're not really happy with, but you have no other choice. So to me, it felt like it was trying to be a working class film, that it was against, well, it didn't really have, well, I wouldn't say it was against, but it didn't have a really, really good topic to talk about how to live as a working class person. Um, again, this, this whole thing about having to move to London to get a job and, and, and you know, supply your family I mean isn't that privilege in its own right I mean it's just again once you start exploring these intimate details of the film it just falls apart and to me it's one of those films where sometimes when I talk when we spoke about what Wendy on this podcast Benny Zeitlin's film Rory was speaking about with such um, devotion and love and craft about the film that it generally changed my, my, my opinion on the film as, as this conversation went on here the more I talk about this film the more I begin to actually hate it and again, I said I don't like to <laughs> I don't like to use the word hate, but for me, this film is self-destructing every second. I mean, there's just there's just very strange sort of tonal decisions and 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 usages of its voice, which on the surface it seems to be against, but then doubled down on through its context of the narrative, and I'm just sort of lost for words of what this was meant what this was meant to sort of be because it doesn't really show Caitlin Moran, because I still don't know who that is. I don't know anything about her character. And being at that age of 16 and having a monthly column, I think, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know about that one. Um, so I, I, if that's, if that's true, I mean, I mean, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't know where that comes from. I don't know what that person can say about, about her life. Um, except for that she's probably been a victim, um, not only through, um, circumstance, but also through decisions that people have put on to, towards her, and the film isn't bothered about talking to that. And again, maybe it's not, it's not quite right to say that uh, that Benny Feldstein's um, Joanna Morrigan is a victim. I, I think that that might be detriment to how powerful that character is, because again, she 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 does a lot to empower herself. But again, the way it treats her almost as a rag doll of sadism is is. Again, it's quite a difficult thing to get through because there's many moments where 
characters just treat her like utter, utter shit and she she just withstands it. I mean, I spoke earlier about having to sit on that PA's knee and it's just, it's just so uncomfortable to watch. Like problematic isn't even the word. It's just generally uncomfortable. But if you're going to do that, at least have some sort of idea of exploring it behind it. Talk about misogyny in, in, the, work, in the workplace. Don't just fucking show it for laughs and all these four men are just, you know, ah, uh, yeah, yeah, cock and balls. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's just not funny in this day and age. And again, you can have a comedic sentimentality about it, but at least undercut that with some profound knowledge or insight. And to both extents, it doesn't do either. So again, I come away from here and it's just a film that self-destructs as moments go on. To round out Coppercast, we like to end on some of our latest film or TV recommendations. Carson, your turn to go first this week. So totally by chance, the day before I watched Yes, God, Yes, I watched But I'm a Cheerleader again. And that is just such an incredible coming to age film that I think everyone should check out. It has the queer identity of a cheerleader who's struggling with her. Well, struggling is a hard word. Um, Just like learning about her sexuality, learning, oh, if she wants men or women. And then she gets sent to a a gay conversion camp. But unlike... um, the miseducation of Cameron Post. This is extremely camp, extremely funny, meant to play for humor. You have RuPaul there. Um, And it's just, it's a film with a legitimate heart. And I love, especially by the end, they break out of just being this camp comedy to give something of legitimate emotion, whether it's romance or a haunting effect. It's a film of legitimate substance, but it's also just incredibly fun. Um, And it works really well with Yes, God, Yes. Again, that film is not necessarily queer, but it has a lot of the same ideals when it comes to questioning your relationship with religion and homophobia um, and just being against your sexuality and how that relationship works. So if you've not seen But I'm a Cheerleader, definitely check it out. It's one of the great 1990 comedies. Kyle? So originally I was going to recommend, as it was due out on Friday, was Boys in the Woods, which is now um, has been renamed to Get Juked, which is a horrendous title, but it's been delayed to the end of the month. So I will leave that one for now. So my recommendation this week, um, I watched it. It's the second time I've seen it, as I watched it years ago. And I remember liking it, but I'd been really intrigued in watching it again. And that's Zodiac, which I'd seen probably about over five years ago now, and I owned it on Blu-ray, so I'll give it another watch, despite it having a really daunting runtime. I think it's just two hours and 40 or something like that. But um, if you've not seen Zodiac, I highly recommend it. It's one of David Fincher's best by far. Um, I can be pretty hit or miss on David Fincher films. I, I like most of them, but what surprised me with this is just, because I'd been reading up stupid videos about the Zodiac and that, you know, like BuzzFeed stuff, but the way Fincher does it in this film, it's, it's really nuanced in the fact it's not got this one perspective of this is who the Zodiac killer is. So let's put in all these, you know, superfluous scenes where we find the killer. It's kind of, it presents all the evidence that happened throughout the the huge amount of time that passed between the first killing and the case that's still open. And although it does imply its own, this is who we think it is. It's just the way it's done is in in typical Fincher fashion. It's just incredible. So if you've not seen it, don't be afraid of the runtime. Although it does feel long, it is highly worth watching the entire thing and finally lena so i finally got around to watching taiko atiti's boy and i loved it and i just i love all of his movies but especially the ones set in new zealand i just love the new zealand accent i love how kiwis use egg as an insult i think that's so funny and it's just like such a sweet film of his name is they call him boy i can't his real name is like alamine after his dad and he lives with his grandmother and his younger brother, his cousins, and a pet goat. 
and his dad is like a deadbeat played by Taika Waititi and his mother like died in childbirth giving birth to his younger brother Rocky. Um, All the characters are like so unique and funny and interesting and Taika is so funny in this and the cinematography is great and I just loved it. You guys need to watch it if you haven't seen it. It's so good. Well, that is it for this week's episode of Clappercast. Where can we find everyone on social media? Alina? Uh, I am, it's my name, Alina Falls, on Twitter and Letterboxd. Kyle? So I'm at Kyle Gaff, that's my name, but without the N-E-Y. You can find me at Kyle Gaff on Twitter, Letterboxd, and pretty much everything. And Carson? So on Letterboxd, I'm just Carson Tamar on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews. And you can find me with the username on both Letterboxd and Twitter at Jack Luke Sharp. And you can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find our social links on Clapper at Facebook and at ClapperLTD on Twitter. Make sure to rate, subscribe or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss all things cinema.